Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Amen. Jesus was very eager to get in the boat. He was tired, for one. He had other reasons, too, but we'll focus on this. He was tired. And it's no wonder he was. Jesus had been surrounded by a great multitude for some time. After preaching his great sermon on the mount, the crowds followed him down the mountain and thronged about him in order to be healed of various illnesses. St. Mark records that it was there by the sea that he preached yet another sermon. He cast out demons, healed the sick, and gave sight to the blind. Last week we heard how he cleansed a leper and healed a centurion's servant without even being there, just by speaking the word. Our gospel this morning is taken from later in the same chapter. The crowds that marveled at Jesus' authority when he taught on the mountain and again by the sea now marveled at the authority he had over every manner of disease and evil spirit. Not even distance could hinder his power and command. And he was tired and wanted to put some distance behind him. At supper time, he should have caught a break to rest. Peter invited him to his house, but his wife had no dinner ready because she was tending to her mother who had a fever. Even here, after escaping from a long day of teaching and healing, while the crowd still lingered outside, his work was not done. Need persisted. He healed Peter's mother-in-law before she was able to start preparing supper. Right after supper, I sit in my chair and relax, and I bet you do too, but not Jesus. He was in high demand. St. Matthew records it like this, and we don't even know whether he was able to get off the front porch or even leave the house. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. There is no rest for the weary. Isaiah 53 clearly and beautifully foretells Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection. And we're reminded of it, perhaps, as we sang that beautiful hymn, which has the tune to a well-known Good Friday hymn. At least it brings to my mind the suffering and sorrow of Jesus on the cross, O sacred head now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down. But Isaiah 53 doesn't just describe how Jesus suffered and died, it also describes how he lived his life. The authority he had to heal and cleanse and free from wicked spirits he had by virtue of being our substitute. He was our substitute not only as he bore our sins on the cross, but also as he labored under the law for us in his daily life. And it wore him out. He took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. He heals from illnesses. By taking illness into himself, he raises the dead by taking death into himself. He casts out demons by facing down hell itself, all alone, and overcoming for us. He casts, or he faces danger of every sort so that by committing himself to his Father, he might keep us safe in danger too. Matthew 8 is a fast-paced chapter. 
not quite typical of Matthew. And it gives you a real sense of the stress that Jesus had. His body was tired and his mind exhausted. He was like us, you know, just without sin. And you see now, perhaps, why Jesus was so eager to get in that boat and push off. He was tired. When Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. And as the disciples got the boat ready, Jesus remained busy as the people continued to seek his attention. A certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go, as though it seems to invite himself onto the boat with Jesus or onto one of the boats that traveled together. And what does Jesus say? See how tired he is. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's like he's partly saying, all I want to do right now is sleep. And partly saying, following me requires that you lose sleep too. So know what you're saying before you say it. Then another disciple, also intent to follow Jesus onto the boat or or else meet up with him later, and figuring he can deal with the stress of having no place to sleep, he says, Lord, let me first go bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me. And let the dead bury their own dead. You can almost hear how tired he is. He doesn't have the energy to explain much or put it softly. He just says it. You see here, though, that it is Jesus who insists on the fast pace. It is Jesus who doesn't waste time. It is Jesus who, as weary and tired as he is, as flesh of our flesh, has no time to slow down. Following him is pursuing life. Life won't wait. It just keeps going, doesn't it? Let the dead bury their own dead. Let death solve its own problems. Follow me. Let's go. Come with me. All ye who labor and are heavy laden, all ye who grieve and mourn, all ye who need what I give, find rest. Find peace. Find what you won't find back there. Find it now. Follow me. Let's go. Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And so begins our gospel lesson, which we have already heard. And the next thing we know, Jesus is fast asleep. This is the Son of God. This is the Creator, our Savior, the child of Mary who felt our human woe. Our Savior, the King of glory, who doth our weakness know. Don't doubt it. Don't think he sits in the heavens and laughs at you and your grief and your problems. Oh, he laughs, but he laughs at the vain ragings of human pride that take no interest in the authority of his word and so take no pleasure in his kindness and mercy. But he does not laugh at you. He laughs at the attempts of scoffers to dethrone him from his rightful place as king of kings and lord of lords and as your savior. He laughs at them and holds them in derision for you because he loves you. But he doesn't laugh at you. He doesn't sneer or grow exasperated with your problems and repeated prayers. He loves you. Yes, he is moving fast. And you're moving too slow. But he stays with you and tells you to come. In his meekness is our brother while dwelling on earth. Yes, he permitted the neediness of man and the constant begging to get him tired 
He let it wear him out, at least according to his flesh. And he did so to take your weariness into himself and to persist and carry on as our Savior and Helper. But now he knows no fatigue. Now his patience is no longer shrouded by human exhaustion. Now he is always at hand and ready and energetically eager to grant what we need, even as he continues to say to you, Come, come quickly, come now, follow me. And don't think he is far ahead of you. He waits. He calls to you. Don't think he sits in the heavens so far beyond your troubles and barks commands without knowing how hard it is for us to carry through and how exhausting it is to do just half of what, what's constantly expected of you. He knows. And he doesn't bark. He knows and understands. And he rebukes. Listen to him. He is better than you are. I am not. He is. Receive his rebukes always. Always receive it. If he is speaking, receive his rebuke. Make sure it is he who is speaking. But receive his rebuke. He is good. He has endured more than you. You have more have depended on him than have depended on you. More have demanded from him, imposed on him, and so forth. What do you bear? He has borne it with grace and finesse and humility for you. He has carried through whatever distracts you, and he has done so without distraction, but with single-minded devotion to how he may help you to the glory of his Father who sent him. He has committed himself to this mission, and he has fulfilled it while more tired, more hungry, more heartbroken, more wronged, more unthanked, and falsely blamed than you have ever, ever been. And he has done so with perfect kindness and pleasantness and without complaint. But he who became one with our flesh to know our temptations, to know both how hard it is for the flesh to resist, as well as how easy it is too. If only we commended ourselves to God as he did and sought his help by prayer, but we don't. Yet he who knows our weakness and knows our sin and knows our cares doesn't familiarize himself with all of this in order to yell at us or judge us but to kindly lead us away from doubt and fear and to rescue us and help us and give us free salvation with a good conscience. And in addition to all of this, this Jesus, our Lord and God and brother, whom the Father has loved from eternity, who still shares our flesh and blood for the rest of eternity, this Savior who is no longer and never again hampered by the weakness of living humbled under the laws of nature's God or creation's judge, this Jesus whom we need and love and too seldom flee to, who has fulfilled every law there is, this Jesus has time for you. He loves you. He keeps a faster pace than you do. And no matter what he permits you to suffer, he means you no harm. His love does no harm to you, his neighbor. He fulfills the law for you. And he neither slumbers nor sleeps. And this Jesus was sleeping. What a mystery. And so it seems for us too that he sleeps, that he's sleeping when he doesn't immediately read our hearts and rescue us from whatever threatens our happiness. As though we were saying, let the dead, as though he were saying, let the dead bury their own and let your problems solve themselves. I'm tired. Like the psalm expresses, awake, why do you 
Sleep, O Lord, arise. Do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? But to this Jesus responds, O ye of little faith, behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. As another psalm puts it, and as we sing, he whom the sea and wind obey doth come to serve the sinner in great meekness. Thou, God's own Son, with us art one, dost join us and our children in our weakness. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, this is our weakness. It is the weakness that the Son of God joins us and our children in. This is our weakness. This is our children's weakness. It is your weakness. It is mine. It is our lack of faith. Jesus joins us in his weak, this weakness of ours in order to strengthen our faith. He had perfect faith. His perfect faith kept him awake when he had to be awake in order to help, and his perfect faith enabled him to sleep when he had to be asleep in order to help. When his disciples were too scared to trust in God, he showed them how. He was not less with them by sleeping. He was more with them by sleeping. Consider that. God is not less for you when he doesn't stand by ready as your butler to solve what you determine to be your greatest need. When you tell him to fill your cup and how high and with what? No. When he seems silent instead, he is more for you. When by teaching you to see the futility of your work and labor, to correct the sails and bail the boat, when he shows you how worthless all your efforts are, and as you wonder why God can stand aloof, he directs you in your sorrow and pain and helplessness to, your, to his holy word where he is never aloof and never silent. For even in his slumber, Jesus was teaching his disciples what they needed to know and do. And so in his seeming lack of attention to your troubles, he's doing the same. He's teaching you to ask yourself what he asked his disciples. Why are you so fearful? God is for me. Who can be against me? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? These words are from Romans 8 and right after this that I quoted, St. Paul quotes from the same Psalm 44 that I quoted from earlier about why are you sleeping, O God? Which says that for his sake we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. You remember the verse. And so it feels. But why else does Jesus allow such trouble to befall us? Even though he is able to heal the sick and cast out demons. Why else other than to put us in the same situation his disciples were in? And what a wonderful situation it proved to be. Let it be amazing that he can heal him from disease. Let the crowds marvel that he can heal her and cast out a demon from her. We are impressed too. But who can this be? That even the winds and the sea obey him when the winds and waves threaten us. It's amazing enough that he can solve their problems. But mine? Mine? Yes, dear Christian, yours. But before he does, he has something to ask of you. Why are you so fearful? Oh, you of little faith. What weakness do you have? 
What sickness? What skill have you not honed enough? What success have you not attained? What relationship have you neglected? Do you wish you were smarter, more disciplined, harder working, richer, healthier, fitter? What? And why? Because you love yourself. Do you have a weakness for what God has forbidden? Do you return to it like a dog to his vomit? Is there some sin that you cannot convince your flesh not to want anymore? And you think that God is tired with you, repeatedly asking for the same forgiveness, for the same sin. And why do you commit it? Because you love yourself. Your self-love does you harm. And whatever weakness that disturbs you, the weakness that Jesus has come to strengthen is this. And this is your most perilous weakness. This is your most vulnerable weakness. And it is mine. He comes to strengthen your faith by teaching you a love that your heart did not invent and that your heart is not by nature inclined towards. It is the love that God reveals to sinners who are humbled and who have exhausted all attempts to help themselves. Oh, he'll address all those other problems if he wants to. But before he rebukes the wind and the waves, before he addresses these fears that seem most pressing to you, what will I eat, what will I drink, and so forth? No, he rebukes you in order to address what is most pressing to him. He rebukes you because he aims to lead you out of temptation, away from your own love and into the love of God that sent his son to save you. All the strength of Jesus' mighty works still left his disciples in doubt. And they would leave you in doubt too. They didn't need another mighty work in order to believe. The concerns they had were like ours. They were insignificant and passing compared to what they needed even in the moment. And Jesus wasted no time. He still set the pace. First things first. Before he calms the storm, he rebukes their little faith. As we considered last week, Jesus' preaching did not point to his own miracles. His miracles pointed to his preaching. The only sign his preaching ever pointed to was the sign of Jonah. That he would die and rise again. So what we lack isn't the miraculous. What we need is not the power of God to make our problems go away. What we need is what we lack most. We lack the faith that must first receive before it can ever be brave and daring. We lack the faith that would render the miraculous needless. For who needs to cast a mountain into the sea? I can't think of a better reason why no Christian has ever managed to do this other than the fact that there is no need to do it. If your faith is as a mustard seed, Jesus says you'll be able to, and you're able to, were the need to arise. But there's no need. But there is need for this. And to this apply all your powers. Do not be afraid of God who judges sin. So judge yourself. Know this need and find it filled in Christ your Savior. Commend everything to God who has commended to us something more precious 
the gospel that gives us peace with our maker and judge through the forgiveness of our sins. On him place thy reliance if thou wouldst be secure. His work you must consider if thy work is to endure. So first, Jesus teaches you. Then he addresses your problems. First, he gives you what you need, a good conscience, a robe of righteousness, the love of God. He teaches you to receive it and make it your own. And only then does he make you brave to face whatever storm exists. Jesus got into this boat not to stand aloof, but to bind his fate to theirs and theirs to his own. And this is a picture for us of why God became man and why this same Christ continues to remain in the church today, which serves still as a figure of a boat in a stormy sea. That's why we call this the nave. As he got into the boat to share their fate, he also willingly took his cross to bear a much greater storm than the storms we are so naturally afraid of. It was the storm of God's wrath against our sin, against Jonah's sin, against the sin of the world in Noah's day, and so also against Noah's sin and yours. But like Noah, you are in safety because you are where Jesus is in the boat. Even though he seems to sleep without concern for what troubles you most, he is at all times mindful of what should trouble you most. He who died to take away your sin rises to tell you not to fear, even while sin still threatens you. He who bore your sin teaches you to be most concerned about what he has already accomplished for you. Before he rebukes the wind and waves, he admonishes you to believe that he has calmed a greater storm and established, established eternal peace. So cling to this. This is your anchor. Find rest and peace in Christ. Believe that he took all your sin away and that God does not condemn you. And he will follow when he sees fit to save you from whatever else makes you afraid. For his sinless death has brought us life eternal, peace and rest. Only what this grace has taught us calms the sinner's stormy breast. In Jesus' name, amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ unto eternal life. Amen.